Hello, and welcome to another episode of VenturesIn.net. I'm Sean Claybo, your host. And with me today, we've got a full panel. We've got Mark Miller. Hey. Hey, Mark. Hey, we John. Got, hey. We've got Christian Wentz. Hello, Sean. Hey. And hello, everybody. <laughs> and we've got Adam Fermanek. Hey, Adam. Hello, hey. It's good to see you. Hey. Thanks for staying up late for us, guys. You know, I know it's your bedtime. You're get, kind of getting old over the hill, you know? You're probably real tired, but Good he's talking to you. <laughs> he's talking to you, Adam. Oh, thank you. Glad you noticed. Yes, I am a little bit sleepy now. I'm a dinosaur, so that happens. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, uh, let's bring on our guest. Um, this guest was last on in February of 2020. And let's see if I remember who it was um, and how to say his name. Uh, um, Richard Campbell. Hey, Richard. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> it's not late here at all. It's like mid-afternoon on a Friday. Yeah, you're the same time zone as I am. So I am I am doing just fine. But I just awesome. had lunch, so I've got kind of that little lunch hangover. Uh, I try and take it easy on Fridays, you know, catch up for the week and mostly plow email. Like, don't usually do shows on Fridays, but for you guys. <laughs> Good. Yeah, we are honored and indebted. So, um, thanks, thanks for being here. So, I got a, I got a personal question actually, because mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, 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 it's legend that that you are researching the the history of of Microsoft all the decades, and so you are the the go to reference, right? Um, so, um, about uh, I don't even know when it was ten ten years ago, maybe even longer. I was on vacation and. Uh, uh, I, I I also stopped in China, and so either in Shanghai or Beijing, I went to the the supposedly largest bookstore. And being the person I am, I just went to the to the IT de department just out of curiosity. And what did do. I see? One of my books, and that was a book that that I wrote in English. Um, and you know, a few weeks later, I just hoped that they kind of sold or burned all of the existing copies. I didn't even know it was <laughs> that the rights were sold uh, for the Chinese language, nor did they actually translate it, nor did they actually put that in print and sold it there. I mean, I bought it, much to the surprise of everyone uh, in there. So far, great story. It's getting a bit sad now because it was my essential Silverlight book. Wow. And I mean, I was kind of proud when it came out for the first three or four days. And then I started to reconsider. And somehow that book didn't do really well. And they didn't ask me to do a new edition for Silverlight 5. And since so you know it was everything, a Silverlight I mean, 4 what, book? It was, like it, was. it was 1, and then I think I upgraded it to 2. But I think, two, and that was my mistake, the, the version 2 book was basically the version 1 book with updated listings. So maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Yeah, because uh, yeah. Silverlight 1 didn't even have .NET in it. It was just JavaScript. Exactly, it was all JavaScript. Yeah. So. Yeah, but the, the book didn't do really well, to be honest. Um, if I remember well, correctly, it's been a long time. In early Except for in China, supposedly. I, I never got a royalty check for that. Um, yeah. I, I'm but, just wondering if it was actually a real book. Like, it wasn't just a pirated version of it. It is Chinese. It, it looked legit. I mean, yeah. real, real legit. Um, and had the logo of the publisher and everything. Yeah, I understand they have Rolexes there, too. They have. <laughs> <laughs> it did look legit. It, I mean, you know, big bookstore and all of the other books next to it looked like legitimate translations of, of U.S. books I knew. But yeah. <sighs> but why didn't that book do well? Okay. Because of me, maybe. But why mm. did, didn't Silverlight do so, do so well? I mean, well, I in so retrospect, the idea sounded great. But um, I mean, you talk to the people. I'm pretty sure uh, about that. Well, people are, nobody would be angry about it if it didn't do well. You know, people are so upset about Silverlight because they bet a lot on it. Then, oh, yeah. And we're encouraged to, you know, the yeah. we the, the hairy moment around Silverlight is that you went from April of 2010 when Studio 2010 shipped and Silverlight is literally front and center in the keynote as like, this is how you do enterprise development. This is C sharp all the way down. It's MVVM. Uh, it works on a Mac. It's now that that was the announced version that ran out of browser. So, I mean, it was a big deal. And then fast forward six months and it's the PDC 2010 and there are no Silverlight sessions. 
And that's when Mary Jo Foley asks Bob Muglia, hey, how come there aren't any Silverlight sessions? And Bob says, not knowing he's the first Microsoft person to talk about Silverlight in six months, well, our strategy has shifted. And, uh, you know, cue the explosions and people freaking out and and serious folks wondering if they've destroyed their careers because they have pushed their company along the path of of using Silverlight for everything. You know, the importance So the question is, like, what happened in that six months? Because, by the way, Bob was talking and I've interviewed Bob since then as part of trying to finish this book. He didn't realize either, but it all right after. 2010 was launched in, in Silverlight 4 in, in April of 2010, the iPad had been announced, followed by Thoughts on Flash, right? The great letter from, from the late, great Steve Jobs. Now, Steve knew two things. Really, he knew one thing. The main thing was that Flash was murdering the battery on the iPad, right? That, you know, this is the era of strong bad and all the flash animations and things and flash is built for pcs it's not built for mobile devices it's not good to mobile devices and it's not efficient it consumes a lot of power and so when you throw it on a mobile device you get problems but the other point about flash was that it was a browser plugin and we forget because i think this is a natural insanity that we have working in the tech industry that every christmas you went to your folks' place, your extended family's places, and all you were doing was replacing their address bars because every single family member had sooner or later downloaded a plug-in, some kind of malware that replaced the address bar in their, in their browser. Like, it was just a constant problem. And so when you read Thoughts on Flash, Steve's very much focused on, hey, plugins are a plague. They're creating huge problems for us, and we're getting rid of plugins. Uh, and that, and that was his explanation for why he, he was not going to let Flash run in Safari. And that's all he's really saying. It's like, going forward, no more plugins in, in Safari. And since Silverlight was dependent on a plugin as well, you know, so at that moment, Silverlight's got a problem. It's not going to run on iOS. And but I mean, the, the Android situation was not much better, right? Wasn't there a beta version of the plugin or something? I mean, you still had to install it, What was super uncommon. Yeah. on mobile phones, right? But Well, and at that point in Android, this was before Chrome was on Android. So this was the Android browser, which is a particularly nasty piece of code. And so it was not easy to make plugins work on that browser at all. And it was a modified version of WebKit. You could make it run, but the average mortal wasn't going to make it happen. And, you know, the smartphone was still pretty young then. People liked them, but the office largely hadn't embraced them yet. If you think about what really accelerated the uh, bring your device to work thing, it was the iPad. Because the iPad was this luxury device. You know, what what I what happened to me as the run-as guy is I started to have a lot of sysadmin saying, so my CIO showed up today, showed me his iPad and says, I expect to do all my work from here. Like, what am I supposed to do? You can't join that thing to a domain. But, you know, that whole movement towards mobile device management and so forth, it's the iPad that kicked that off. But this is 2010. It's just starting. Like, none of this has happened yet. We're not ready for it. We have no ability to deal with it. We just have this note from Jobs that he's not going to let Flash run on iOS. And instead of Microsoft, they're like, fine. Now, in this is not Microsoft's fault. In normal procedures, if you think about the way Microsoft has always dealt with these things, what happened when Sun got the injunction against Microsoft for Java? Because at the time, Microsoft made a version of Java, J++. They had a couple of versions out. Anders Halsberg is working on it. So what did Microsoft do? Well, obviously, they went to C Sharp, and they also made J++, uh, J Sharp. And they created a bridge so that anybody who'd committed to the Microsoft version of Java had a path that lasted until 2008, like 10 years. You had a bridge that could migrate your Java code written on the Microsoft stack over to, to .NET and the CLR. So why didn't that happen for Silverlight? And that's the great question. And the issue, again, is the iPad. So when Microsoft rolls out, when, when Apple announces the iPad, Microsoft sees it as an existential threat. And specifically, Steven Sanofsky sees it as an existential threat because Steven Sanofsky has just shipped Windows 10, 7 and he's a god, right? He's rehabilitated Windows from the Vista debacle. 
And now he can do no wrong. He made the office clock, uh, the office clocks run right on time and they loved him over there. And now he's, he's fixed windows with the favorite version of windows, windows seven. And one would argue still in one of the most favorite versions of all time. And here comes the iPad. And so he pulls the, the, the andon cord. He rings all the bells. It's like, this is an existential threat to the company and we need to address it. And he's got a vision about how he's going to go about it. And he wants to make it a big splash. And so he basically locks down communications for Microsoft. Now, he had a couple of vision things going on here. The original version of XAML, uh, the project Avalon, uh, that was initially part of Vista and then got pushed out in order to deliver Vista on time and became Windows Presentation Foundation because the rule is if you have a cool code name, you have a terrible product name, which Boys. is why they called... Why the, why the code name for Silverweight was WPFE, because calling a code name you know, Windows Presentation Foundation everywhere means you get to have a cool product name. So they shove all that stuff out in, and it lands on .NET. And one of Sanofsky's goals coming out of Windows 7, now that he's rethinking Windows and wants to address the iPad, is that he wants XAML back in the OS. And so he's now poaching people out of the Silverlight team as quickly as possible. He needs them to start implementing XAML for the OS because we've got to respond to the threat of the iPad. At the same time, we've got Windows Phone running full bore. And they're in, they're in Phone 8 at this point. And they, are, they have now abandoned the subset of Silverlight that was WinPhone 7. And they're now going to redo the operating system for the second time. But don't worry. There'll be a third time just to really demolish the developers' uh, hopes and dreams. And so they're poaching XAML people as quickly as they can, too. So by the time you get to the PDC in 2010, there's essentially nobody left in the Silverlight project. They've either been pulled into the Windows team or they've been pulled into the phone team. Like, the place has been gutted. So why were there no Silverlight sessions in the PDC in 2010? None were submitted. Yeah, no conspiracy. Just nobody had the cycles left to actually do that work while the team was being dismantled because they saw the writing on the wall and they were needed elsewhere. If I recall correctly, uh, the, the Silverlight One plugin, wasn't that even externally developed externally by an external company? Do I remember that the, correctly? So the team was probably built too late and then disbanded too early, right? Well, the team was around for quite a while. There's a bunch of motivations for how Silverlight got created. On one hand, you get that you have the Netflix issue. So Reed Hastings gone to Microsoft. He wants to get away from the red envelopes. He wants to start streaming on the internet, but the internet's awfully young. Still, there's not enough bandwidth for this. So he wants the variable bandwidth ability. He wants the ability for a client to negotiate to understand the current rates and be able to drop down to lower resolutions of video and keep functioning, right? You remember this demo, this media services demo with IIS? The original client was the thing they bought that became Silverlight One. And so that's why it didn't have anything to do with .NET in it. It was really about trying to manage this problem of dynamic uh, variable rate streaming. So basically it was a video player with a JavaScript bridge. Yeah, and JavaScript was your interfacing part so that you could connect into it and so forth. That's what it was initially intended for. But in the fallout of the uh, Vista, which is all in that same time frame, you have all these other bits and you have this odd version of .NET that's been generated, the pseudo .NET 3, that was the catch-all for the fallout from Longhorn so that Vista could go on to do its thing. And so as they're cleaning that up, they see this opportunity. Now, they'd also been experimenting with runtimes on other platforms because the other thing you think about when you think about Silverlight is the fact that it ran on a Mac. And it did use .NET 3, although .NET 3 was a very odd version of .NET. It was really the CLR 2. And they made an implementation that ran on Mac OS. So it was a cross-platform product long before anybody wanted to talk about a cross-platform product. The other thing that was very important about Silverlight culturally was that DevDiv, largely driven, especially the website driven by Scott Guthrie, really wanted to get out of the 18 to 24-month cycle that was Studio. Up until that point, .NET had shipped with a version of Studio every time, 2002, 2003, 2005. And that cadence was too slow. They couldn't respond to the market. 
they had gotten web forms squared away finally in 2005. Like it was genuinely good, right? With CLR2, that membership profiler, all of that good stuff. And folks could really build, especially internal enterprise class apps that would work reliably and run on service for an extended period of time. And now Ruby on Rails comes on the scene in a big way. And it's very dynamic and it's very rapid to build. And it's where web people are happiest being able to go quickly. Now, you can we can debate how well that software scaled over time the way that it was built. That's always a challenge with dynamic languages. But it had a lot of strength. And taking two to three years to ship a new version was just not going to cut it on the Microsoft side. So part of... Guthrie's response was CodePlex, creating a, a repository place where you could push out code to more folks and going out of band, starting to press out versions of software, including Silverlight, through the CodePlex channel, independent of shipping new versions of Studio. And so he put out three versions of Silverlight in less than two years. That was a demonstration inside of Microsoft to say, we can ship software faster. But in .NET Rocks at that time, we also started writing our, we also did a show called Is Software Development Getting Too Complex? And we were talking about how hard it was to assemble a stack these days where there was all these different places that we could download bits, like trying to build a new machine to do Silverlight development meant you had to get code from three or four different locations. This is before packet man package managers or any of those things for in the .NET world. So it was really a challenge to make any of that work as he was going out of band. But these were all the sort of political forces at work between trying to innovate at a higher rate, trying to defend the Windows empire, uh, respond to the iPad, you know, lots of different folks acting at once that literally nobody built a bridge for Silverlight. There was never even a consideration for it. And that's really why folks got so angry. You had they had told their best customers, those large Fortune 500 companies, you can bet on Silverlight. And then they left them hanging. Now, one would argue they moved it over to a maintenance team eventually. And in late 2011, they put out version five, which would be the last edition. And it was supported for 10 years. It only went out of support in 2021. At that point, it was hard to get it to run on any browser. Like you pretty much needed to do the special IE uh, 11 tricks to make it work. But doesn't matter. You still had the same problem of you had committed a lot of development resources, a lot of training and so forth to work on a stack that was no longer to be worked on. And it kind of came out of the blue. In some ways, I, I consider myself one of the lucky ones that's, you know, somebody that's been in .NET since the beginning that never worked with Silverlight. You know, never took a bet on it. Yeah, yeah. I was I was excited. And I wanted to learn it, but I was stuck in the web forms world. And unfortunately, I'm still stuck in the web forms world. So. Well, and and now a web web forms has been left behind in four point eight, right? Yeah. Like we, although they've still done, I think a bit more graceful of care and feeding for web form for folks for no other reason, irrespective of it's the right thing to do. Four point eight is still important in Windows, right? Like the Windows team hasn't gotten off the standard framework, and there's no sign that they will. So it's going to continue to get serves security patches and so forth. Uh, and there's no sign that that'll ever stop. You know, it's, it's only going to be after major players are off. Remember that U.S. Navy has not moved off of XP. They still continue to pay Microsoft to maintain security patches for XP. Like my, Microsoft will do what you want. All you have to do is pay them enough money. Yeah, I could. I would feel better if I could use the more recent uh, versions of C Sharp. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I flip it over so I can go to C Sharp 8, even though it's really not, you know, fully there for... C-sharp 8, but, uh, you know, now I'm and that, out. that We did that show on .NET Rocks back in the day where Mads was just admitting, like, it's just getting too expensive to, to develop two versions of C-sharp, one that will run on the standard framework and the one that takes advantage of what was once known as core. And, and some of the tricks they were doing depend on the architectural differences in core and just were going to be impossible to implement the standard. Oh, yeah. I understand it. It's just as, you know, as the developer, you want to be able to use those in those older projects. And you can't. Things are shiny on the core side, Sean. <laughs> know. You know, it's well. very fun over there. <laughs> uh, uh, and it is interesting to see, like, what does it take for an organization to be willing to commit to the effort to switch switch off of standard and you're seeing microsoft trying to facilitate that with the new upgrade wizards and things like that like there's there's a real strong case 
as an as a conservative IT guy to say, the longer you wait, the easier it gets because they will keep building tools to, to make the bridges easier and there will be classes that map across and so forth. So there's a strong incentive to take your time there. Yeah, I've been reading lately about using a reverse proxy against the web forms project mm -hmm. and having something out front front of it that's more modern and just pass through and just kind of, they called it the uh, strangler pattern. I don't right. really care for that name, but you know, strangler pattern is, uh, you know, is what but it's it. a way to wrap up that code and keep it in a safe place. I keep wondering if the Power Apps guys aren't going to eventually, because the Power Apps guys already have a form analyzer. Like you can take a port paper form, scan it, feed it this thing, and it'll spit out a Power App that has that form on it. Like, tell me the difference between that and a web form. It just doesn't seem like it would be that hard to screenshot everything in a web forms app, feed it through the same mechanism, and suddenly you've got the prototype of a power app to replace that app. As long as it's an internal app, because of the way they're doing a licensing for power apps, like, there's a bunch of ways to bridge forward. But I see a lot of web forms app as internal only. I remember first days uh, of migrating .NET Framework apps to .NET Core back then. I remember the decisions that were later on reversed, like the change of CSproj file to something, I think it was JSON, and they yep. reverted that and other yeah. stuff around. I remember trying to push it hard, you know, to move on to .NET Core 1 and 2. As you're saying, the, the longer I waited, the easier it got. Actually. Sure. Well, because the core team made mistakes too, and the JSON uh, project files were one of them, that they simply couldn't do all the things that the standard project files did and represented too large of a breaking change. You're just separating the clients, and so they ultimately backed off from it. So there's something to be said for letting a couple of versions go by and letting somebody else knock those bugs out. You know, as the admins say, change is good. You go first. Yeah, another issue I remember was around like config files. Back then in .NET Framework, you had config and next to your exe file. Then in early .NET Core, it was like, idea is cool, just read any JSON, but how do I know where this JSON is? How do I load it automatically, right? Well, and, you know, the funny part is that a lot of those project files were all just text in the end anyway. They're just not really pleasant to read. But then when was JSON ever pleasant to read? Hey, Richard, I've got a question about your book. Um, I want to say, like, I think for about four years, I've heard you talk about this, I Longer. think, working on this. Um, and uh, I'm interested to know, are there heroes and villains in your book? Do you have a sense of the tone? Is it like a dark comedy, like Weekend at Bernie's at times? I'm just, <laughs> I, do you have, have you decided any of this? I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious I, I about mean, that. I've written a few versions of it along the way. My biggest problem right now is that I don't know how to write history books and I've been learning and I've made some mistakes that have forced me to tear it apart a few times. The big thing I've come to appreciate now is that I really do have to write it backwards. I have to start with the things we know the clearest now and then fit the narrative going backward. Because when I went forward, I got into a corner where it's like, this book no longer makes sense. You know, I'm asking people to remember meetings from 15 or 20 years ago. And I even have three or four versions of that meeting, having talked to so many people about it. None of them are the same. Uh, everybody's a hero in their own story. That's inevitable. And uh, so trying to pick the ver the a set of pieces that fit together has been challenging. And there is a dozen or so pivotal moments over the 20 something year history. Uh, and so I'm just trying to get all of those to hold together. And the pandemic was not good for me for this kind of focus work. This was supposed to be the summer to finish, but then life's gotten in the way. We we're selling the house and shuffling everything around. So I'm hoping maybe this uh, winter will be more uh, helpful for me to do the long focus I need to finish getting this together. But I played with versions of this story where each chapter was actually the narrative of an individual who has a pivoted moment at that time in, in the history. Um, there is the problem with the heroes and villains scenario is that real people have good days and bad days. Uh, I don't think that anybody went to work thinking today's the day I'm going to screw the company up. <laughs> you know, that they, they that's really cause they, that's because I wasn't working there, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think when you start painting people's motivations, clearly you get a better idea of why things were happening the way they were. 
But it is absolutely a story of a group of people with a variety of goals and a variety of intents that end up there. Remember that .NET's not an intended product. It's an emergent product. They were solving a set of different problems and essentially ran into each other. Yeah, for your for your picture on the book, I think you should try to replicate Bernie's little smirk that he had throughout the movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite a smile for a dead guy. Uh, just, just don't don't take a boat ride with you and fall off the back. You'll just I mean, I all battled over the, the title for this thing for a long time, and even the overriding theme, like what do we learn from this history? To me, the thing that's really emerged from this that's astonishing to me is that we're still. The skills you learned in 2005 using Studio are still relevant in 2023. Uh, I mean, honestly, I know mo most people I see, many people I see using Studio, at least 2019, use it like it's 2010 because there's so little. Fundamentally, it hasn't changed. There's lots of new features and lots of new capabilities. and The language has gotten better. You know, this is something I argue with Mads all the time. It's like you built these great new language constructs, but why is anyone going to use them? when the code they wrote for, for C-sharp 3 works fine, right? And this is where we get into some of these new co-pilot tools and things like this, like encouraging to use new language constructs would be an interesting part of all of that. But the idea that we fundamentally replaced a framework to go from something that was built to build enterprise apps for Windows to a framework that's cross-platform and open source and kept the dev tools over top of it the whole time that's an extraordinary achievement yeah. while also completely pivoting the business model. They went from closed source, patented, licensed code to open source. As long as it runs on Azure, everybody's happy code. Yeah, that's clever people with power, with, with agency, mm. right? You can't do that without smart people that have power within the company. Well, and, and are able to affect all the way up and down, too. You know, there's a really interesting moment that you'll have in the book that I'll give away at this point where the senior leaders have figured out that .NET needs to be open source. So, But it's not up to them. The team that's running it has to decide that this is something they want to do. And the team that's running it also knows, like, what we're doing isn't working but open source is an impossible idea. Microsoft is fundamentally hostile to open source. For crying out loud, the CEO said just a few years before, Linux is a cancer. And so they present a sort of halfway idea to the leaders saying, hey, we're thinking about doing this and opening up this way and trying this and so forth. And they're like, we know you're on the right path, but we think you need to go all the way. Like, think bigger. And they're actually timid to finally say, you mean we could open source it? And they're like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I think you guys should work on that. Nice. Uh, but there was also the statement that says you only get to reboot a platform once. So be very sure you really want to do it. Well, people still don't know that .NET is open source. Like, that is because the long history of Microsoft, as you said, being hostile to open source. So many people are still surprised that .NET Core is like for what, 10 years now? And, and not to just be adversarial, you know, like Mark, but they also changed open source to do this, right? One of the th themes we've had on .NET Rocks for a long time now is the impact of the tech giants living in the open source world. And just how hard it is to, to have written a tool because you want to use it at work and you put it up on GitHub and some other folks liked it too. And, you know, it's, it, everybody's a fan and they use it themselves and they all contribute together. And then a couple of Microsoft FTEs are assigned to it by a PM because Microsoft thinks it might be useful to them. And now you have two people who can work 40 hours plus a week on this project and they'll bury you in PRs. You've still got a real job. Now, not that that happens much, but the disparity we have here is that in the social coding concept that was GitHub back in the day. We were all peers. We all had regular work and we were contributing to other things. And these were our hobby projects. And we were enthusiasts. We were equally knowledgeable. We were there for the same reason. And again, I might be painting a bit of an idealistic view of early GitHub. And now we have, you know, I've talked to a young developer who's been assigned to an open source project as a contributor by his PM. And just say, like, I paid 
full time to contribute to this. Like what, how could the project lead keep up? He's got a job that isn't this. I think Google also had this similar stuff, right? There is this Google Summer of Code and many projects they participated in was like GitHub or open source projects, but it was never like full time around the clock. Yeah, and of course, it's a dream for a lot of folks of, you know, could I turn my hobby into a job, which, by the way, is a great way to screw up a hobby. Uh, And, but, you know, we have a recurring theme now of talking to folks who have, you know, quit the job and now turn the open source project into their their job and what that's necessarily like and and what that, and and how to go forward on that. I don't know that it's the rule. You know, lots of people want to become consultants. It's always a grass is greener thing. Every consultant I know wants to make a product and every product guy I know wants to be a consultant. So do you think the uh, the bright future is you know, you know, Blazor or is it going to be Maui or, you know, what's the adoption do you think is going to be for those technologies? Well, let Let's talk about why Blazor's popular. And I think one of the main reasons that Blazor's popular, besides C-sharp all the way down, and the version coming in .NET 8 is especially impressive because now I don't have to decide on WebAssembly and all that complicated thinking, is that it's a flashback to the old ecosystem we love. You know, the halcyon days of .NET development where you had sets of component suites from various vendors, <coughs> DevEx, uh, and Telerik and so forth, I mean, that was your business, right? Is that you, ha- you, you had a control suite you could work in and, and you would do your thing. And it hadn't been like that for a long time. Uh, you know, that the, the Microsoft is sort of, as they're turned towards Azure, they kind of turned away from the broader development ecosystem and uh, you know, kind of left those people feeling a bit loose. And then came Blazor and an opportunity for those developers that liked that ecosystem to work in a new environment that was contemporary, modern, and Steve Sanderson approved and could benefit from that extended ecosystem providing additional tooling and capabilities and so forth. So Blazor feels very familiar to a group of developers who were worried that they were left behind. And now or can work on the new bits and be comfortable. If you're a developer, on, right? Or, or do you see many people from, from other communities kind of suddenly I, switch over? I mean, the, the, the niche I, I really is pretty don't well see defined, that. right? Yeah. It, I mean, we definitely are living in our bubble, for better or worse. And our bubble just got nicely reinforced. Uh, but it's also hitting V3, right? .NET 8. That universal, the universal blazer, that's very much a V3, a blazer. No wonder it's good, because that's the rules. Where Maui's just barely out of one. Now, I appreciate that Microsoft is trying to clean up its act on client-side development. I think that's important. It's been a problem for a while. And unifying all of these bits and pieces that they've had for the Xamarin acquisition, migrating wind forms and so forth over to core, like they've done a lot of parts simultaneously. Trying to build a unified story around that is compelling and smart and really, really hard. And so, uh, you know, folks like Maddie and David and all of the folks, and it's, you know, part of my challenge now having done DNR for as long as I have is like, these are my friends. Right? Like I've known a lot of these people for a long time. I know how hard they're working on these kinds of problems. It's not trivial. So, I mean, I come with a ton of bias and a deep appreciation for them. But the problem they're trying to solve is a righteous problem. We should have a great client stack that it doesn't matter where you go, that it should work. It's also very quixotic. You know, the we're the only ones who care about cross-platform development. The customer just wants it to work on their device. They couldn't give a crap about any other device. So we're busy solving a problem for us that, for the most part, our customers don't care about. And that's challenging to do well and, and, and hard to justify. But they've got the momentum behind them. They own the whole stack. They seem to have done the political thing inside of Microsoft to get everybody on board with this. So they should be able to get enough versions out that we can finally see some real value from it. Right now, it's still tough, but it was always tough. I think historically, developer experience has always been pretty good. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, then there's always that point where you have to decide whether you, you march on or you let, uh, how, how does uh, Spolsky always call this, uh, 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 architect astronauts take over, right? And then yeah. make, make things pretty, but, you know, 
more but nobody's going to actually use them. Yeah. It helps to have a product like Flutter out in the world. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right, like I, to me, Flutter is is a remarkable achievement, at least unifying Android and iOS development. Uh, we can debate that it's whether it's gone further than that. They're now struggling to be on more platforms than that. But if you looked at how tidy the implementation was, and I can live with Dart, me and like three other people apparently, uh, it was a really nice unified experience. And that, you know, Microsoft's better when they're chasing. I think Flutter came along really helped unify the the problems that 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 Maui could address. That's a remarkable product. I mean, just just that they managed to have great, uh, great uh, front-end performance, but they are drawing all of the uh, UI elements themselves and are not reusing mm -hmm. the ones from the platforms. That that is that is pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. And yeah, I think competition is healthy, um, unless you work on the Internet Explorer team, right? But, mm -hmm. so. but it also makes you know what's happening with large language models so bizarre because. How did Microsoft end up being the lead on this? Like that, I, I, I've got to think it's accidental and yet they've also embraced it. I, I'm, I'm used to Microsoft wanting to come in second. It's safer, right? They don't want to be, even with Blazor, like they sat on Blazor as an experimental project until the week that Golang shipped in WebAssembly. They continued to work on it. It was just a beta project. They weren't going to push it out. They weren't going to support it. Just kept ticking around like that until Golang went first and didn't get crucified. I think they were really afraid to be seen as folks that were attacking JavaScript and going into JavaScript's domain. And so they just kind of waited. And as soon as Golang came down the pipe and went, okay, well, you know, they were the pioneer, not too many arrows in the back. Maybe we can go that way too. And unfortunately, they'd actually had a lot built. So when they landed initially with Blazor, they landed with a pretty big bang. Like that was, a, they'd been working on it for a while. And I thought that would be a pattern for them going forward. It's like, take your projects, keep them experimental, be upfront about it, but only commercialize it when you see that there's a market in place that you can run to and, and, and try and catch up on. But that's not what happened with OpenAI and ChatGPT and now the co-pilots. You know, when, when I was uh, a guest on .NET Rocks, we were talking about AI. Mm. And one of the pieces that came out that I, that I found super interesting was uh, uh, you express. Well, let me ask you, how do you feel about anthropomorphism and combined with AI? In other words, attributing well, good. Let, I mean, just look at the historical context on this. The, the term artificial intelligence is coined by Marvin Minsky in the 1950s as he's trying to get money from the military, um, which he succeeds in doing, and actually builds some extraordinary stuff for the U.S. military in terms of logistical management and, and capacity planning and so forth. To this day, the U.S. military is the best logistical engine in the world for moving uh, moving weapons and, and forces around and, and being efficient. That's what Minsky built for them and called it AI. He couldn't create the intelligence that anybody wanted. And so they went into their first AI winter, one uh, as of several. But knowing that the term is that old, the first time it shows up in popular culture is in 2001, A Space Odyssey in 1968. It's Hal, and then Hal tries to kill everybody. Like, why are we confused about people's relationship with AI? The meta has been pretty solid for a long time. If you make an intelligence, it's going to kill everybody. So, you know, now you're going to productize that? Like, how, how good of an idea is that? And the stupid part is, like, we've had machine learning for decades. The original papers for generative AI come out of Jeff Hinton in the 80s, where he really said, look, the hardware is not up for these kinds of deep neural networks. So I'm just going to put this on a shelf. And it's his grad students that take it off the shelf in the 2010s that becomes this new wave. But we had machine learning well before that. We've been doing this stuff for a while. And one of the things I saw as a consistent pattern is, as long as you were calling it artificial intelligence, it's because it didn't work. As soon as it did work, it got a new name. It became image recognition and voice translation and predictive analytics and large language models. So my instinct as someone who's invested in a lot of tech companies and communicated ideas like this is like, if you're calling it AI, it's because you don't know better or it doesn't work. It, call it the product that it actually is. This is an umbrella term 
that has been steeped in anthropomorphic mindsets. It's prone to killing all of civilization. And so it might be good for raising money, but it's not necessarily good for making product. I think we see this scheme many times, like drifting apart from AI for a bit. Like we had this object-oriented programming and then people started creating God objects. So we had to come up with different name, which is DDD now, right? We see that everywhere. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, well, and also when a name is resonating and will be effective, uh, you know, at getting results, then you tend to cast a lot of things in it. Remember when everything was ActiveX? or everything is Azure, or everything is Agile. Like it's something you can get in a squirt bottle and spray things and it'll go faster, right? Hey, I squirted all the developers with Agile. They're going to go faster now. Okay, same thing with AI. I squirted the whole company with AI. Now we don't need employees. It wasn't there also a Windows.net server or something? <laughs> yeah, no, we definitely <laughs> .netted too many things for a while there. You know, we we tend to jump on the marketing bandwagon. Heck, I've been just making fun of the whole Visual Studio, Visual Studio code. They don't have anything to do with each other, right? But you gave them the name and now it creates problems for everybody. Uh, I mean, I'm. that being said, Copilot's a great name because it's got all the implications in it that you need, right? It's you're the pilot. If this goes wrong, it's still your fault. I was, that was only the co-pilot. You took the co-pilot's advice, yeah. well, silly you. <laughs> it's not autopilot. But also Microsoft didn't come up with it. It was GitHub. Yes. Yeah. I think a very clever name. And, uh, and the folks at GitHub have, I mean, arguably have the, the most significant LLM product running right now. In a sense that, and I and I think there's a reason that GitHub Copilot's done well. Not only the fact that it's the oldest; it's been around since 21, but that its customer base is good at reading code, and so the code that it spits out, and even Microsoft admits, it's like 50% of the time that code's useful. But generally, if you refine the prompt, you can get it up to 60%. Uh, but at least it gets you thinking. You know that creative juices thing, getting past a blank screen, always valuable. Like I think most of the time. Large language models mostly spit out word salad. Some of these things are code, but that word salad can stimulate stuff in your mind that helps you do a better job. And so the tool is beneficial. Um, but I also think from a code perspective, IntelliSense and compilers help us a lot in managing what GitHub Copilot gives to us too. So, you know, it's a particular scenario that's better than most. I think we're going to benefit quite a bit from it. And I talked to a lot of developers who, sh who are getting a significant productivity boost from utilizing that tool. Uh, I recently did an interview where we were talking to a fellow who says, you know, the, one of the big pluses here is that you don't end up in a browser. Because <laughs> once you're in a browser, you're one click away from cat videos. You know, like staying in studio with Copilot integrated means you're more likely to keep working and not get distracted. You know, in this ADD world, that focus is valuable. And so having uh, a large language model assistant fetching stuff from the greater world for you to stay focused on your code, very, very powerful stuff. You know, Richard, I find also that having a conversation uh, with, a, with an LLM about code is often faster at getting me to the answer I want than, than a search. It's a and different it, level of rubber ducking, it. isn't it? Like really it is. It's a rubber duck that where the duck gets to say and is confident. It's wrong, but it's also confident. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think going in, you know, I know for me personally, I accept the, the I guess a certain likelihood of of, of either hallucinations or incorrectness, but Bugs. I I also see that it's effortless to guide it in yeah. the direction you want to go in, which is way different from working with a human. Well, Humans and we're and we're experienced developers. We're used to shepherding less experienced developers, and this can do a reasonable impersonation of an of an inexperienced developer. Yeah, I I and still have always you know, Stack Overflow as my backup to Copilot, but you know it's nice that Copilot has never once said, "Have you tried searching first before you you ask the question?" <laughs> yeah, hmm. 
Or, you know, this would be better in Ruby on Rails, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Just yeah. let me Google that for you links. It gives you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's an that's a April Fool's Day joke I've got to do on GitHub Copilot is replace the interface with something that says if we wrote this in Scala we wouldn't have these problems. And that's the yeah, only yeah. thing it ever says, no matter what you ask it. Well, on the other hand, when talking about Googling and and AI, like last week I was doing something in Go, I think, and and I was not aware they have this uh, this um, approach over that that if you name your variable with like lowercase letter, then those variables are private. And it took me like 20, 25 minutes to figure out why I can't access this variable from some other class, right? I finally found the Stack Overflow topic that covered that nailed my question, right? And then I asked ChatGPT, hey, why doesn't it work? And it immediately said lowercase letter. And I thought, like, now I knew the answer. But normally I would think, okay, you're hallucinating. So why do you think so? Show me a link to a proper explanation. Right. And he gave me exactly the same link that I found by a Stack Overflow. And that, what a great confirmation, right? To say, I see how you're fine, yeah, how you've built your information set. It's the same mechanism I would use. So now, now you can treat it as the automation it is to say, yeah, you search the same way I search. Awesome. Yeah, and you can always try asking it, hey, explain where you found it, right? And yeah. maybe it will spit out the, the URL for you. Yeah, I mean, not that I'm keen on Bing AI, but its default behavior of giving it, of producing footnotes for everything it said, showing the links that it came from, just saving a step. Like, I do think there's refinements that can happen in this space. The same way that I really appreciate the edit tab on Wikipedia. You know, I it's one thing to read an article. It's another thing to see how that article got built and the debates around that, that when you see the effort involved, the quality, you can get a sense of the quality of the answer, where if it was produced by one person once, you can be far more suspicious. I think as LLMs improve, one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to have that tab. Do you want to see how I came to this paragraph? Well, here you go. Here's the places I looked. This is the data connections that I had. This is. I'm hoping we start to get into more automated fact-checking, that the moment it's producing a sentence, it thinks it'll appeal to you. It's also validating that sentence separately. Uh, I'm kind of shocked sometimes when it's spitting out code. Well, at least it always apologizes like when you like tell it, it could hey, take. this code you gave me just gave right. me an error. <laughs> it's, yeah. And it's it, the fastest apologizer I've <laughs> seen on the internet. Well, I'm, I'm, you understand it's led by Jeff Hinton, who's at least a temporary Canadian. So, of course, it says sorry very easily. I got it. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Anyway, I, I do think it's an exciting time. It's fun to have these new areas. Uh, clearly, there's, you know, the crypto boys weren't having any fun, so they've all jumped on the AI bang, bandwagon, and we have a lot of, of corruptware kind of offers, and that's fine. Those who wanted to get rich quick on this stuff are going to lose a bunch of money, and eh, they deserve it. You know, bet, better that we have a few folks that are focused seriously. We see the limitations of this particular model. You know, the AGI folks have moved on, and I don't see that as a bad thing. You know, go find a better algorithm. In the meantime, the, the engineering folks are busy implementing these tools uh, in specific areas to try and get some more value from them. So one uh, one quick tangent on, you know, something that I think you're also very involved in is, you know, what's kind of the status? How's how things going with the humanitarian toolbox? Uh, you know, the pandemic was tough on HTBox. In 2019, we were typically at three or four events a year. And we'd, we'd be alongside the workshops. Like, we don't want to go to a workshop when you come and contribute to a code that we get as few contributors to different projects. Um, when the conference is all wound down, we try to do some of that stuff online, but it was very challenging. Uh, so it's been hard to get contributors. And even now, sort of post-pandemic, folks don't have a lot of cycles to volunteer right now. Like, it's just been very challenging to get folks on board with different projects. That being said, the need is there. We're certainly experimenting with different approaches. I've been working with some students and things on, on uh, other software to build. There's lots of great ideas out there, you know, in the, in the area of disaster response and disaster preparedness, just applying mobile and cloud to things can help a lot of people. And, uh, you know, back in 2012, when we were first talking about just focusing on disaster response and preparedness for HDBox. It was a little 
you know, anticipatory of the fact that here we are 10 years later and the rate of natural disasters is only increasing. I mean, we're recording this a couple of days before the first hurricane to hit Southern California in 85 years is going to arrive. So, we yeah, just had the thing in Hawaii. So, yeah, and tragedy in Hawaii. Uh, there's fires all over British Columbia. I think we're currently at um, 15 new fires of concern in 24 hours out of the several hundred that are burning. The city of Yellowknife has had to have been evacuated. That's the capital of Northwest Territories. 20,000 people have been put on buses and airplanes to get them out of there. Um, one of our wine district areas in Kelowna now is being evacuated for a different fire. Uh, it's challenging times, and I, I wish we could ha- we could do more with the tools we have to help people respond more effectively. Has this, the uh, conference scheduled to pick back up with dev intersections and things like we're, that? Yeah, we're back in the swing of things. So uh, the, the next dev intersection is the first week of December in Orlando. And uh, I think we've got a, the mo- most of the structure of our schedule together. We might be doing a few additions. Um, certainly, there's other topic areas that are expanding. AI is huge. So we're co-loaded with the Azure and AI conference. because I think those two go very well together. You know, development on the cloud, development with large language models and the other tools. Like that's going to be a great conversation for folks to have. And we're setting up other events for other stacks. You know, it's, it's, uh, if you're working in Power Platform, we put together a Power Platform show. If you're part of the Teams ecosystem in the M365, we've now got a show in that space as well. And more emerging. All right. Uh, should we move over to Pix? I think so. Unless anybody has a last question for Richard, we'll, we'll do picks. All right. Christian, why don't you go first with your pick? Yeah, so today uh, I'm back to uh, recommending something I saw on streaming services. So no uh, tech pick today. And I was watching, I think it was on Apple TV, I was watching uh, Tetris. Uh, because that's probably, I think that's the first and maybe only game I played on my Game Boy was younger so you see how old i am um um it's it's well it's kind of on uh it's, so it's a movie not a series uh it's uh kind of on the game but the game is uh is is basically used to to tell the or to describe the the east-west conflict uh so pretty pretty interesting someone from the u.s uh travels uh, to to russia uh to secure the rights uh, for the tetris game so Pretty, uh, pretty nicely weaved uh, into into the story, into the narrative. <sighs> there are some moments in in the movie which I found uh, kind of rather weird, but uh, it was it was nice to see. It was also technically really, really nicely done how they they incorporated in some aspects the the I don't want to give too much away the the, the pixel era uh, into into the visuals. So uh, really, uh, I enjoyed uh, watching watching that movie. So. Uh, it's Tetris um, on uh, Apple TV. All right, Adam, what's your pick? So we need to have two picks for today. That's because, <laughs> as it has been already told, I need to. I typically go with software. So my software pick for today is called API Monitor, a very fancy application for Windows that lets you basically attach kind of like debugger to other process and see what WinAPI uh, methods it calls, kind of like S-Trends on Linux, uh, but very nice GUI application for Windows. You can um, add breakpoints, you can override the function calls and basically hack the stuff uh, this way. So that's the software pick. However, I have another pick, which is a book, uh, which is called Entertainment Science. So if you ever wondered whether, because you all talk about like uh, shows, TV series, whatnot, if you ever wondered whether changing like PG rating for a TV show increases or decreases the revenue, whether the, the piracy and like illegal streaming services actually bring benefits to, to the shows and, and or maybe on the opposite, this book answers ton of those questions. So um, I just finished that and I think I can really recommend if you are into shows, entertainment, books, games, whatever I want to see how it's done behind the scenes, this is a very good position for you. Mark, what's your pick? Uh, Named Anonymous, or sorry, Named Pipes is my pick. Um, This is, I think, actually old tech 
relatively old technology, but I discovered it just like in the last two or three days. And it started with a conversation with, uh, with AI uh, about how to have communication between two processes on the same machine. Uh, what I needed to do is I needed to hook up one stream deck to multiple instances of Visual Studio because I have this idea of buttons that are contextually aware of what's happening inside of the environment. So my stream deck is going to be, the at least the stream deck plugin is going to be the server, and then all the instances of Visual Studio will be my clients. And uh, after the conversation with AI and about uh, a couple hours of fiddling with it, uh, I actually got it so that uh, a really nice demo up and running that was effectively sending messages between console applications where I could like start up or kill console apps all over the place and things would just connect and talk to each other uh, and uh, without a whole lot of work that I had to do. So that's my, that's my tech pick. And outside of that, uh, my wife, Karen, has been laughing like crazy like all day long. And I asked her, what's going on? And she's watching a show called Platonic. And, and the thing is, is Karen's a stand-up comedian or she's a, she's has comedic background. She was a stand-up comic. And so she laughs at very few things because she sees everything coming. But the show, she's really, really enjoying. I saw a little bit of it. Seth Rogen looks great in it. Uh, it's on Apple TV. Uh, you might want to take a look at that. By the okay. way, uh, Seth Rogen, uh, I think, was also the guest in the first episode of uh, the Bill Gates uh, podcast, uh, Unconfuse Me. Uh, so uh, he's a great, great talker um, about him. Too, so. <laughs> well, all right, over to you, Rich. So I've been doing, I, I joined Windows Weekly at the beginning of the year. Mary Jo Foley changed careers around. She's now over directions for Microsoft and had to step away from the show. And Paul and Leo asked me if I'd like to get involved. And Mary Jo used to always finish the show with the fa her favorite craft beer because she loves craft beer. And I'm not a beer fan. I'm the I'm the guy who thinks that beer, you know, whiskey is what beer wants to be when it grows up. So they said, well, will you do a whiskey? And I'm like, sure, let's do a brown liquor segment. And as I started explaining like why I liked a certain whiskey, I realized maybe I need to explain the whiskey process a bit more. So over a set of shows, at the end of each show, I walk through how Scottish whiskey is made. It turned out to be eight parts. Uh, the sum of the eight parts is two and a half hours. And the folks at Twit Network have now pulled all those out as a playlist they call Windows Whiskey. So if you search for Richard Campbell Windows Whiskey on YouTube, you'll find this collection of me explaining uh, Scottish whiskey step by step. And now we started adding the 20-minute pieces where I said, now let's talk about how American bourbon is different or how Japanese whiskey is done or even the, how the Canadian whiskey is done. So if you're that's something that interests you, uh, I, I didn't know I could talk about whiskey for two and a half hours, but apparently I can. So uh, the fun part about that series is that after I explained to you, you know, how it was originally done and how it's done today, then I introduce you to a whiskey that doesn't comply with any of those things. Okay, so my pick this week is a product. Um, when I first started working from home, I was just standing around and walk around just in my bare feet or socks and things like that. And my feet started to hurt really bad just because, you know, not having any support and things like that. So I went out and I bought Skechers Arch Fit shoes. And they work wonders for my feet when I'm just in the house. So my pick is, uh, you know, Skechers Arch Fit shoes. So if you're working from home and you have bad feet, bad arches or anything like that, check these out. They're very comfortable. Lots of different styles, things like that. Is that what you got, Mark? Uh, you're, you're, you're sorry, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I was like, where's my mute button? I gotta grab my mouse. No, <laughs> yeah, I think I got these. These are these are sketchers, and I love these. These are really awesome. I don't know if they're the same. I can't quite tell, but I love them. Yeah, so there's lots of different styles for the Arch Fit, but it's just one of the technologies that they have available, and the the ones I have are just slip on shoes, things like that. So I just wake up in the morning, get out of bed. My office is just the next bedroom over, so. That works for me. That's the commute I like right there. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Richard, um, people want to get in touch with you. I know they can uh, listen to you on .NET Rocks and 
DevOps. Yeah, I'm not too tough to find these days. <laughs> and uh, at Rich Campbell on on what the the social media shell that remains of Twitter. Uh, I'm on Mastodon at Rich Campbell at Mastodon dot social. Uh, yep, I've you got, got a Blue Sky Radio. account, a Threads account. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, for listeners get want to get in touch with the show, they can find me on X, aka Twitter. <laughs> or threads i am uh at net superhero so let me know what you think give some uh show ideas we'd love to hear from you thanks everybody 